price of Bitcoin goes up. But you're holding altcoins. When you get out of jail. But then you log into Gripsy. When you short BTC. But yours is the exchange that got hacked. knock down your door, but your laptop is open. When you escrow your value with an exit scam, and then you double down. fork your blockchain and then you hard fork your blockchain and then you hard fork your blockchain Welcome back to episode 17 of Unconfirmed Transactions. I'm your host, Dan Anderson, of the Dojo Dilettantes, the Butthole Surfers, and the Rare Pepe Heretics. That's a very exclusive group, that last group. So today's episode is going to be a collection of oddities and rarities that I've picked up in my Bitcoin travels in the past few weeks. There's a backlog, and when I say backlog, I mean three voicemails to go through so we'll get right into that this first voicemail is from stoicism and this is from a little while ago so he's going to be referencing the last episode but it won't be the actual last episode but let's listen to it excellent up, okay coins stoicism again attempting to iterate the requisite level of stupid uh really like the last episode especially the part of the beginning um that was fucking hilarious love that bit um, first question, uh, is this crypto locker referral program thing real? Because this has been fascinating me for a while. Like, you know, you install crypto locker on your boss's computers and then when they pay the ransom, you get a kickback. Uh, is this thing implemented yet? Is it out there yet? And, um, if not, then, uh, you know, somebody should put it out. Okie dokie. So stoicism, you are officially the chief entrapment officer. I know I gave you that duty on the last episode where we discussed things, but this is truly you living up to that expectation as CEO of Unconfirmed Transactions. Now, um, in regards to are crypto locker affiliate programs real, I don't believe so. I've never seen one. I also haven't looked into it. You got to know that. But I would imagine that the reason they don't exist is that it's if you're going to if you're going to go through the trouble of crypto lockering your boss's computer and risk that, why wouldn't you just be the guy that did it versus the one that's getting 10% or whatever, or 50% when you're taking all the risk? <coughs> so, there's that. Uh, next thing, um, is Bitcoin being used in prisons right now? Because it seems like there's been some mention of that before, but I haven't seen any, like, uh, I haven't really researched this too much, but I'm wondering if you know about people using Bitcoin in prison. That's another good question. I don't know, I don't have any empirical evidence to suggest that that is in fact what is happening. But if you're, I'm, 
I feel confident that there are people in prison who have Bitcoin. So, I mean, if you're in prison and you don't have access to your Bitcoin, but you have Bitcoin, are you using Bitcoin? Um, third thing, do you think that uh, Tor is going to be used by default in the future, like encryption by default for all kinds of, you know, onion routing by default? That seems like something that would be cool, but and it keeps getting faster and faster, so I'm wondering what you think about that. And uh, all right, that's all I got. Thanks, Dan. All right, so that's a, that's a bit of an oracle-y question, as in, like, what will happen in the future? Um, let me just say that I don't know. I'm not an expert. I don't have, like, facts I would tell you about what the future holds, but I do have facts about what the past holds, you know, what happened historically, and I'm going to lay those out. And this might not be like a direct answer to your question, but I have like a, a write-up here that basically breaks out, you know, what is Tor? What's the history of Tor? Some attacks on the Tor network and some surveillance systems that exist and we know of their existence thanks to Edward Snowden. So I'm going to lay this all out and then this will be information, you know, to consider. All right, let me just go at it. This is going to be like a presentation. So what is Tor? Tor is an onion routing relay network. That's a bit of terminology. I think it's good terminology, but let me explain it quickly. Onion routing is a way to pass messages over a network. Messages have layers of encryption like an onion. Wow! Onion messages aren't sent directly, but rather they are routed through a series of relays. The relays that are selected are revealed and removed in transit while decrypting layers of the onion. I'll explain that more in a second. So onion routing works sort of like this. You have a series of relays. Let's say we have three relays, and those three relays are selected at random. The source, let's say Alice, then encrypts her message and its destination three times, one for each relay. That builds up the layers of the onion over around our message. So Alice routes her secret onion message to relay three. Let's just say you have this onion, and this onion is a message, but we'll call it an onion message. So Alice routes her secret onion message to relay three. That's the first in the relay, which peels back one layer before routing it to relay two, which peels back another layer before finally routing to relay one, which peels back the layer to find the message and its destination. So it's sort of like a waterfall effect in the encryption, and that's how it gets passed along. If you want to read more about this, go to Wikipedia. I did just take a quick moment for a commercial break with our, one of our sponsors, Pete the Greek. Pete the Greek here, coming to you from the Alaskan border, from the Canadian side, about 3,300 miles to this point from Frederick and Grayling. Piece of cake. I can keep going to Hawaii if I could get the truck to cruise through there. So i uh, got to go through Canadian Customs here, and uh, still got, I think, uh, 300 miles to hit Fairbanks. But, shoot, I'm on the downhill slide now. Thanks for the update, Pete. So here is some history on the creation of Tor. Like, that's what Tor is. That's how Tor works. But let's go into the history. So, onion routing was developed by the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory in 1995 for U.S. intelligence communications online. DARPA helped fund the development of onion routing in 1997. In 2002, Paul Syverson, a mathematician for the Naval Research Laboratory, and two other computer scientists founded the Onion Routing Project. That's where TOR comes from in TOR, the Onion Routing TOR Project. Then in 2004, the Naval Research Laboratory released the code for TOR under a free license in the EFF, the Electronics um, something Frontier, Freedom Frontier, Frontier Freedom. Oh, my presentation was going so well until I blew up an acronym. Electronic Frontier Foundation. There we go. The EFF started funding the two computer scientists that also founded it with Paul Syverson. Their names are Roger Dingledean and Nick Mathewson. All right, so that's some of the early history. 
but it's interesting to me that I'm calling this like the early days and it's 1995 to 2006 and that's longer than Bitcoin has existed. In late 2006, Dingle Dean and Matthewson and five others formed the Tor project as a 5013C responsible for maintaining the code. Early financial supporters include Human Rights Watch, the University of Cambridge, and Google, among others. From this point onward, onward in 2006, the majority of funding sources came from the U.S. government, like the National Research Foundation. Now, our major event of interest is November 2014's Operation Animus. So this is 2014. It's been a 5013 since 2006. And 2014, that's post-Bitcoin. But there's like a big interim there that I'm skipping over. But the major event of interest is November 2014, Operation Animus. An international team of authorities have seized Silk Road 2.0, the latest iteration of the relatively well-known underground drug trafficking website. The site was part of what's known as the Dark Web, a collection of encrypted websites typically only accessible through anonymizing software such as Tor. Federal officials say it attracted more than 100,000 users buying and selling illegal drugs since it sprang up five weeks after the original Silk Road was seized. The New York FBI branch announced authorities arrested alleged Silk Road 2 founder Blake Benthal, known as DEFCON, in San Francisco Wednesday. was interesting because it's a 26-year-old was arrested in San Francisco for owning it, just like Silk Road 1.0. And I know that Russ Ulbricht is... Um, appealing his case right now in real time um but in totals in operation anonymous not anonymous but anonymous in total 27 sites 14 of which were claimed to be drug markets so 27 hidden services were shut down on the tour network in november of 2014 big operation people got arrested and the the question is how because they were using Tor, like they were running hidden services. The same way the messages are onion routed for the browsers, the people, the users. Also, you can set up a server in sort of like a similar fashion such that you don't know the server's IP, but you can still visit that server. It's sort of like the same thing in reverse a little bit. So they're using that system. How are they detected? That doesn't make sense. So a representative of Europol, that's Europe's law enforcement agency involved in the operation, said, this is something, this is a quote, this is something we want to keep our, for ourselves. The way we do this, we can't share with the whole world because we want to do it again and again and again. It's, end quote. It's speculated that they used Carnegie Mellon University's research and DDoS relayed nodes so that traffic was relayed through only the attacker nodes. So Carnegie Mellon had this, it was a controversy, you may have seen it, but they were doing research on de-anonymizing the network. And so if you have this network of nodes and the, the relay nodes that are honest are being DDoSed, you can't access those, so you reroute. And you'll, if you DDoS enough of the network, you're re being rerouted or routed originally through just attacker nodes that are not being DDoSed. The FBI has denied having paid Carnegie Mellon a million dollars to exploit this vulnerability. Since then, it has that, that vulnerability has been patched, but court documents in November 2015, so remember this is November 2014 when the Operation Animus went down, and then November 2015, court documents related to that revealed ethical research concerns centered around the Fourth Amendment. So there's a lot of like hubbub about that. You can look this up. But get this. The court documents reveal that in November of 2015. One month later... The Tor project has a new executive director, Sherry Steele. So that's like a change of leadership after this sort of ethical concerns. That makes a lot of sense. But she previously led the EFF for 15 years. And remember earlier in 2006, I mentioned that when they were created as a 5013C, a majority of their funding came from the EFF. And then after that, the U.S. government. But this new executive director, Sherry Steele, was a major proponent that pushed for the funding from EFF while she was at EFF in 2006. And this gets to the, the, to the question of Tor growth. One of Sherry Steele's 
key stated aims is to make Tor more user-friendly in order to bring wider access to anonymous web browsing. So I think that's cool, but things are getting weird here. Like, this is a weird path of development. There are a lot of serious organizations running the Tor network, involved in the Tor network, funding it, interested in it. Um, I would imagine that means it's still being used for its original purpose of U.S. intelligence communications. I don't have any way to substantiate that. But I think that's why you release the software at all. Like the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory re- released this software because onion routing is more effective with a larger set of uniquely owned and operated relays. It just becomes more effective at scale. And so now get this though. In July 2016, this is very recent. So we, I was just talking about November of 2015. Now July 2016, super recent, the entire board stepped down and was replaced. The entire board stepped down. So there was a change of leadership. Now it's July 2016, and the entire board steps down. And one of the new board members is Matt Blaze. You may have heard of Matt Blaze. You can find out more about Matt Blaze at Crypto.com. Crypto.com. Matt Blaze. It's really easy to frame this as a debate uh, with a trade-off between, you know, national security and law enforcement on one side and privacy and strong encryption on the other side. And, you know, we, everybody participating in, in this debate for the last uh, um, two decades um, easily falls into this um, because it's, it, it's, it's an easy way of, of reducing this to a simple principle, but I think that's, it's completely wrong. Um, you know, this is a question of increasing national security and law enforcement on and having encryption versus decreasing our uh, national security and our ability to prevent crime um, by having weaker encryption. You know, we're both on the same side about wanting to prevent and solve crimes, and we're both on the same side for wanting to uh, uh, make the country more robust against national security threats. Um, And unfortunately, it's a battle we're losing by not doing things like putting in strong encryption everywhere we can. So I would love to stop having this debate and get back to work. That should tell you all you need to know about Matt Blaze at crypto.com. Anyways, so you have a weird history here where the U.S. government creates funds, uses, and subverts technology all at the same time, or like it, or like maybe over time it changes, but it's a, a like a some sort of weird subterfuge there. Um, so that's Tor. That's what it is. That's his brief history, including Operation Onimus, which literally means an operation to make the unnamed named. I'm just gonna take a quick break to hear from Tizen about LeonFu.com. Ties in, what do you have to say? I figured, you know, since uh, my little sister kept saying that uh, Austin had a big art community, I was going to go there and get a job teaching art, working at an art gallery, and then uh, focus on learning how to trade and invest in the stock market at that time. Okay. Um, and so what happened was when I got there, I did not, I went down the wrong street in downtown Austin. And I ended up going into the club district instead of going into the art district. And I thought that, in my mind, I thought that maybe my little sister did not fully understand what the art district is or what an art gallery looks like or, you know, whatever, right? So I didn't make a big deal of it. I just went down and I was, I was wanting to get a job really bad. And so what happened was I ended up, one thing led to another. I ended up getting a job as a club bouncer and a club promoter and the person that helped me get that job was Eric G and he helped me get a job there Eric G was like the top club promoter in Austin Texas at that time and he had a very he's very very good at going out onto the streets in the public where there were thousands and thousands and millions of college girls and he would pick them up and bring them into the clubs and fill up the clubs with hot girls. And he's probably one of the best guys I've ever seen in the world to do that. Very, very good at doing that, okay? And so when I met him and I told him I needed a job desperately, he helped me get a job there and as a bouncer because I was a former uh, 
you know, I was a trainer at that time, so I was training people how to get big and strong for sports and stuff. So I was probably about maybe 15, 20 pounds more muscular back then before I had all, uh, before I had all my heart attacks. And so at that time, what happened was he got me the job as a, as a bouncer, as a club bouncer. But the uh, first day that I showed up for work, the club promoter did not show up for work. So they got rid of him, they fired him. And so they put me in his place to be a club promoter. I did not know how to do it. So Eric had to show me how to, you know, kind of like show me the ropes on how to pick up girls and bring them into the club. So one thing led to another. And within a very short period of time, within three or four months, I became the top club promoter in downtown Austin in the club district. So I was bringing in an average of about 50 girls on a regular day and then about 100 hot girls every Thursday, Friday, and Saturday into the clubs. And so me and Eric were the number one and number two top club promoters in the city of Austin for several years in a row. During that time, uh, Leon Fu would come down to the club district to meet girls. You know, he, we were all single, he was single. At that time, Eric and I did not know Leon Fu, okay? However, I was working at the clubs one time and I saw a bunch of Asian dudes watching me pick up girls. And they would watch us every day, like literally. And for a while there, I couldn't, I couldn't figure out why these dudes would stand across the street and just kept looking at me and watching me pick up girls for the clubs. And then one thing led to another and I found out that the reason why they were standing across the street watching me pick up girls for the club and bring girls, hot girls into the club was because they were single guys and they had heard that I was the top club promoter down there and they wanted to see how I approached girls, how I met them, how I seduced them or how I talked to them or how, you know, the, the conversations that I had with them to bring girls in. And so they were asking me to teach them how to pick up girls. I know this has nothing to do with cryptocurrencies, guys, but this is how we got started, okay? This is how me and Leon Fu and Eric G and all of us became friends, okay? So... Oh, okay. Thanks, Tizen. So to be clear, you went to Texas to work in an art gallery and teach art while studying finance. But you took the wrong street, and Eric G was like, you want to be a bouncer and a club promoter? And you rolled with that. Why wouldn't you? He fills up millions of college girls with hot clubs. I mean, you were a trainer before all your heart, heart attacks. Wow. I'll check back with you later, Ty. Maybe we'll hear about what's going on in Alaska later, too. All right, back to tour. Um, let's talk about X Keyscore now because it's related. So that's some background, and I want to just transition to X Keyscore. There are 7,000 Tor relays at this moment. It's kind of interesting to me that we have about the same number of Bitcoin or Ethereum nodes, not combined, but separately. Like Bitcoin has like five to seven. Ethereum has like, I think there might be like 8,000 or something like that. It could be more, but like this sort of like range that seems to be like the upper limit for these kinds of networks at this time. Um, what do they call that? Like a local maxima or something like that, which I think is interesting. It might be totally unrelated, but it seems sort of related. So networks, can, we know this. Networks can be DDoSed and simple attacked. We know that. We know that happens. They're also analyzed. And when they get analyzed, valuable data surfaces and gets related in graphs. Okay, that's just what happens to data. XKeyScore does this to the entire internet. Not just Tor. That too, but not just Tor. The entire internet. KeyScore is a formerly secret computer system used by the NSA, and shared with Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the UK, and Germany. So that's what's known as the Five Eyes plus Germany. Germany's not one of the Five Eyes, but the other ones are considered the Five Eyes. The Five Eyes Alliance is sort of an artifact of the post-World War II era, where the Anglophone countries of the major powers banded together to sort of cooperate and share the costs of intelligence gathering infrastructure. So we have the UK's GCHQ, we have the US NSA, 
Uh, we have Canada's CSEC. We have the Australian Signals Intelligence Directorate. Uh, and we have New Zealand's DSD. What the result of this was over decades and decades was sort of a supranational intelligence organization that doesn't answer to the laws of its own countries. In many Edward Snowden said about XKeyScore, it's a quote, it's a front-end search engine, end quote. Now, I'm reading the Wikipedia, but they have copies of top-secret re- top slides that you can see which describe XKeyScore as being, and this is from 2008, as being 700 servers and 150 sites. So that's in 2008, 700 servers, 150 sites the world over. And you could have on those servers virtualization, you know, different IPs. So XKeyScore is considered a passive program that, in that it listens but does not transmit anything on the network that it targets. They call it full take data, which they get, which then gets crunched for metadata like phone numbers, emails, unique identifiers. They call those selectors. They build a fingerprint of their target, which is a collection of selectors that they think t- best targets your profile online, your identity online. So one of these important things that was revealed in the leaks, because a lot of people that use Tor, use VPNs, they use Tails, they use Hunix, they use like a cube OS maybe, um, and they have um, you know a number of layers that they do on top of this Onion messaging routing. You know, they also have like a Onion-like structure before you even get to Tor. But according to these leaks, analysts can detect VPN usage in target machines for hacking or identifying target machines for hacking by the Tailored Access Operations, or the TAO. The TAO is more than 1,000 hackers under the employ of the NSA. According to the Washington Post, TAO engineers prefer to tap networks rather than isolated computers because there are typically many devices on a single network. In 2014, it was revealed that XKeyScore is used to closely monitor users of the Tor anonymity network, people who search for privacy-enhancing software on the web, and readers of Linux Journal. Okay, so that's the end of my presentation, basically. Not like tinfoil hat information. This is all um, leaked, cited information and things that are happening. So just something to know about. I don't know the whole spiel there in terms of like, would everybody by default use Tor? I don't know. Um, But here's the history of Tor and what's happening and how it's used. Um, It's not that these systems are like owned by the government, like if you use it, you're you're not necessarily getting getting owned, you know. But um, there's definitely room for improvement, um, and just there's just stuff to be aware of. Like I don't know how to make any prescriptions for you or for anyone about how to use this. I think I may have in the past or something, probably. But like this is still, I think, responsible to um, explain the history of Tor. What is Tor? How is Tor funded? Who runs it? Um, sort of like the history of like leadership and scandals and how there is an infrastructure, global infrastructure for mass surveilling the internet. And um, Tor, using Tor is like a signal in the noise to these um, metadata machines. I'm a slave to the sound And they're calling the 
Okie dokie. This is breaking news as of hours ago. I'm editing and this news just broke, so I started recording. But basically, the Backpage.com CEO has been arrested in Texas. The Texas Attorney General has made some statements about Backpage.com to the, around the order of, quote, Making money off the backs of innocent human beings by allowing them to be exploited for modern-day slavery is not acceptable in Texas, end quote. Quote, I intend to use every resource my office has to make sure those who profit from exploitation and trafficking of persons are held accountable to the full extent of the law, end quote. That is a, the Attorney General Paxton of Texas. He has arrested the CEO of Backpage.com, who was apparently 55 years old. He was arrested on his way from Amsterdam to Texas. They appear to have a very strange legal structure where they are a Dutch-owned LLC incorporated in Delaware with its principal place of business in Dallas, Texas. To me, this is I'm reading this on Breitbart.com. I don't know what the truthiness of this is. This is a website edited by Milo Iana blah, 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 blah but um i don't this seems like a crazy legal structure to have a crazy legal structure to have one of the things within the warrant is that backpage receives more than 90% of their revenues this is a quote from a warrant uh, allegedly according to breitbart.com Backpage receives more than 90% of their revenues from adult escort ad portion of their classified advertising. In California, that amounts to approximately $50 million in revenues for the period between January 2013 to May 2015, or between $1.5 to $2.5 million per month. So from 2013 to 2015, over almost two years, about a year and a half, they made $50 million over a year and a half hmm. doing Backpage.com. He just got shut down. I don't have any details about this beyond that, but beyond that, just something that's happening. Interesting is that, does this mean that they're going to get shut down and there's no longer a Backpage.com? What does that mean for Paxful.com? Is Backpage.com CEO getting arrested related to Paxful.com getting arrested? Did Paxful.com um, give information for a more lenient sentence? Did they cooperate with the government after their arrest? Were they arrested because they were being surveilled? And does did that result in the arrest of the CEO of Backpage.com CEO? I think this is pure speculation but i don't think it's the the timing of it isn't insane either it's like you know apparently like a tourist called in these guys acting like jackholes with their guns or like maybe they're being surveilled and they were like well this is a fine time to just like be like uh you help us get back page now (laughs) So we'll see, we'll see. I think I don't think that's an outlandish. I don't think that's a, a a crazy idea. I do believe that the rational response to this concept should be to consider it total nonsense until proven otherwise. But I did want to just drop this in while I'm editing. So let me just quickly point out as a totally different train of thought that reddit.com slash Bitcoin continues to have or r slash bitcoin continues to have news stories from news.hodlhodl.com and this is something that's been frustrating to me because big r bitcoin is famous apparently for being so censored however some reddit user named mighty mouse 95 continuously submits news.hodlhodl.com to r slash bitcoin and gets a lot of upvotes hits the front page a lot of the time and all news.hodlhodl.com is when you go to it is a copy pasta of somebody else's article 
So you go there and there's a title and a photo and a thumbnail and some some text, but then there's a source article. So it's simply a copy paste. There's no original content on news.hodlhodl.com. It's purely a bridge page. If you actually go to hodlhodl.com, the primary domain, not the subdomain news, but the hodlhodl.com top level domain or secondary level domain, it's a coming soon page for a Bitcoin exchange, a Bitcoin exchange. And I keep reporting these these as ads on our Bitcoin, and they thought that gets ignored. But like, apparently, um, Bitcoin's Reddit, right? It's supposed to be super duper 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 censored, but this apparently is okie dokie. Um, I don't know what's going on there, and it's really frustrating for me to see. Um, it's it's an exchange. They're like promoting an exchange, just copying people's articles and like submitting it to our Bitcoin. Maybe they buy some upvotes, and they're getting all this like traffic to their exchange, which hasn't launched yet. We don't know if it's a scam. We don't know if it's whatever. Like, is this pay to play? Is there a pay to pay to play situation here? I think it's likely because like everything else gets um, just like cut out. Well, okay. Speaking of pay to play, let me just cut to some audio from my boy Tai Zen and Leon Fu. We actually already heard from them. Like I just already played a, a sponsored ad prior from Tai Zen where he was talking about his come up from being an artist in art galleries to finance studying kind of guy to a club promoter and bouncer and it's not related to cryptocurrency but that's how he and tim taizen got connected with leon fu okay that's all going to come together right now because now here's a clip from an interview with david johnson chairman of fact and inc with taizen and leon fu and this is my my third sponsored ad of tonight's show let's check it out Okay. All right, guys. If you guys can hear me, uh, please uh, let me know. Okay, Leon. Hey, uh, could you uh, say hello over there, uh, Leon and uh, David? From the they are broadcasting from the Factum headquarters, so that way we can make sure the audience can hear us. Hey, guys. Uh, this is Leon. And this is Dave. We are at the Factum office here um, in Austin, Texas. Hey guys, okay. how's everybody doing? Yeah. All right. Sorry yeah. about the uh, broadcast mishap, guys. For some reason, there was no uh, uh, start broadcast button on uh, on either side of us. Uh, we could not figure it out what happened, so we just had to create a new uh, YouTube live stream feed so that you guys can see us because uh, we could talk to. Uh, I could talk to Leon and David from the uh, Factum headquarters, but um, we weren't able to uh, broadcast what we were discussing out to the public. But uh, I'm glad that you guys can hear it. Okay. All right, guys. Um, so we're going to go ahead and start this broadcast here. So now that everyone can hear us, let me just uh, introduce everyone. All right. Uh, first of all, you guys know we got the Honorable Grandmaster LeonFood.com, the great Oracle of Cryptocurrency, the Oracle of Austin. I've made a ton of money to listen to this guy uh, uh, invest in different cryptocurrencies, okay? Now, <laughs> next to uh, the Honorable Grandmaster LeonFu.com, we have David Johnston. <laughs> David Johnston is the chairman uh, of Factum Incorporated. Um, in case you guys don't know, Factum is the cryptocurrency, and then um, we have Factum Incorporated, which is the company that does the software development for uh, uh, Factum, which is a uh, open source uh, public software and that anyone can use. But the company, Factum Incorporated, is the one that actually uh, develops it. And David Johnson is their chairman. He's also the, uh, the, the main guy that um, does the uh, investing uh, for the, the, uh, the public. He does not in, does the investing. I'm saying that wrong. He's in charge of the uh, public, uh, uh, communicating to the public about the, um, the uh, the different um, we uh, how's the legal way to say this, David? The um, 
I, I work with uh, investors uh, that want to get involved in Factum Incorporated um, and really just help to educate them about what its capabilities are um, and the cool use cases that uh, companies are starting to use Factum for. So, so I do essentially the investor relations for the Okay, yeah, Th that's the word I was looking for that was stuck in my head, <laughs> investor relations. Okay, now on this broadcast, guys, we have to uh, let you guys know something that is a little bit different from the previous uh, broadcast that we've done with different uh, folks that are involved in cryptocurrency. Um, because Factum Incorporated is a company and they are, uh, they are uh, getting uh, uh, money and funds from the public, from investors that want to in invest Factum Incorporated and stuff like that, we have to be careful because there's certain, uh, for uh, legal reasons in the United States of America here, there are certain legal questions that regards Factum Incorporated that we cannot ask uh, uh, David. Okay, uh, for example, anything that has to do with the price of the, the factoids that's being traded at Poloniex or any exchange, um, he cannot discuss about that because in, in the U.S. there's certain SEC regulation and laws that prevent uh, uh, people who are in charge of investor relations uh, not to solicit uh, funds publicly or anything like that. Okay, so what we're going to discuss in, in this uh, interview, guys, in this hangout with David is the business side of, um, of Factum Incorporated and see what they do, the kind of customers that they're going after, uh, what they do that's different from other cryptocurrencies and things like that. But as far as the uh, price uh, of the factoids that are being traded, uh, we're going to avoid that. And LeonFood.com and I will discuss that in a separate video without David uh, being here because uh, we don't want him to get in trouble with the, uh, the SEC. So thank you again, Ty, and thank you, LeonFu.com, for bringing to us this interview with David Johnson of Factum.com. Just closed their Series A for $4.8 million um, to discuss how, you know, Factum is an educational offering and you can always double your coins it's like it's like pitch like one coin it's like well, oh yeah we'd love to talk to you about how we're edu we're not pitching you a security i can i can tell you that david what's the legal way to say this <laughs> well it's an education package that's what ruja told me <laughs> keep it together man this is this is real life. This is a real thing on the internet. This video has two thousand views. Just just consider that this is a leading cryptocurrency. This is how it's talked about, this is how it's promoted, it's who it's run by. These are its faces. These are the new this is the news you hear, and this is a like a leading one. You, you you really need to don't don't please don't hang your hat on that please please don't hey this is lucas royale from canada um on the dojo as well hey i just wanted to get a shout out um or know about if the hornet has been implemented i'm not talking about the, about the gay porn site i'm talking about hornet it's like a alternative for this whole network um, I, there's like rumors that there's like a small hacking group has, that has already implemented it, but who knows? I uh, just want to get your feedback. Um, if this will be a reality, if it is a reality, and if it indeed will be more secure than a Tor network. Peace out, ciao. Hey, Lucas, I'm just going to refer you right back to everything I just said about Tor, its history, its development. And I would think it would be reasonable to think about Tor's development history, future past, whatever present, um, as sort of a parallel or an extension that Bitcoin is involved with. Like it's like a branch in the same Merkle tree, you might say, um, Tor and Bitcoin. But Tor is like a 20-year-old project with like a long history very established and Bitcoin is like a six to seven year old project without the same level of like a establishment. 
both in terms of like it's established and it's like used by the establishment. Uh, that's what I would say. But just refer back to what I just said. I don't know about Hornet, but everything that is, has happened to Tor, Hornet needs to uh, understand that context. And again, the, this episode started with a question maybe from Stoicism about Tor being like the default or onion routing being the default. But the the point of that and something we're seeing with Bitcoin and with Ethereum and all these networks of value we're seeing, any anytime you have a valuable data bank, they get attacked, they get hacked. I was zero cool. Zero cool? Crash fifteen hundred and seven systems in one day. And the the third call, and maybe this like the final segment for this episode, is it's run a little long. It's been a little weird. It's been a pretty packed hour of maybe monotone monotony. But welcome to the show. It's episode seventeen. Are you new here? So let's wrap it up with longtime listener, second time caller, Christian. What's Christian have to say? Hello, Mr. Anderson. I haven't called for a long time. You haven't done a show, so I figured you need some content. So in response to your uh, question about scamming myself in uh, why is Bitcoin not a scam and scamming myself, I would say that um, totally, totally Bitcoin, um, the temptation is to believe that you will magically become wealthy because you have some Bitcoin. Um, that is the if you if you believe that um, you're and that you're going to somehow replace your income, what you contribute to the world, just by holding some Bitcoin, um, you are absolutely scamming yourself. And I and I'm totally guilty of that at times in my life with uh, thinking that I could buy a lottery ticket and I'm going to win the lottery. Uh, people scam themselves uh, by buying lottery tickets all the time. So uh, so just like all the altcoins and believing that you are magically going to get rich by purchasing some uh, magic internet money of different flavors, um, it's possible to totally it's possible to scam yourself. And I have scammed myself at times. Um, but I have, uh, I fight the urge to scam myself, and I am, uh, so here's a, I was just, I just realized this. I, I, I've believed this for a while, but there is the, so if you look, you look back in history, and, and you know, who knows, this is a version of history that maybe people might not know, or maybe it's not even true, but. It's a it's a lens that I kind of see the world in, and um, now I'm rambling. So if you if you look back in time and history, uh, you know we have a hunter gatherer. Uh, you know over history, you've got hunter gatherer type societies, and you. So when you started to have the ability to grow things with agriculture, and then you have the ability to store those things. So wheat is an example. You can grow wheat or grains uh, and then store those up and use that uh, down the road that you don't go hungry when you can't find uh, things to uh, can't find things to kill and eat, uh, or you can't find like random nuts and berries and other things. So if you look at the innovation of like a grain silo and the ability to store up enough grain so that you can um, go through times of change and drought. Um, 
you have basically the the idea that you can um, feed populations larger than you that can exist in small tribes, and so eventually that turned into markets where people could exchange, store up, and it also here's the other thing: you have to be able to store those grains uh, in a facility that keeps out pests, um, rats, those kind of things. Rats, rats are crazy, man. If you have, if you leave grain um, laying around, or even just if you're feeding your animals, um, and you have small bags, or you have bags that are open, or things on the ground, rats will start to grow there and, and be there. So, I guess the, the comparison I'm going to say to Bitcoin is that instead of being able to store up value in a silo, in a physical silo, then we transferred that to markets where you would store up things in a bank account. Uh, Bitcoin allows you the ability to store up value in computer code. And uh, if that is, uh, if you store that properly, um, you have the ability to store up more. But here's the thing. You have to, you, you don't, get to store up enough grain that you don't have to farm. That's not the point. If you think, oh, wow, I've got this grain, this silo of, of grain, and we never have to do work anymore, then, then you, you're, you're in for a surprise because eventually you are going to eat through that if you're not continually planting. So, uh, I guess it all relates back to the, the point that if you think that you don't have to work and to add value um, continually um, as an individual, as a family, as a community or whatever, you you are scamming yourself. Um, and if you're not moving forward, you are going to have a harsh reality wake-up call. So that, I'm going to leave you with that, and then you can um, respond. But I miss, I miss hearing none from transactions. This has been Christian Burns calling in to the Unconfirmed Transactions show. All right, thank thank you, Christian, for your call in. I'm just gonna leave that uh, as is, and uh, I guess my response will be, la 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 la. I'm not listening. Blah 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 blah. I'm not listening. Uh, <laughs> I will be made rich by my magic money in my grain silo. So, you know, maybe not you, because you're not a believer. But I'm I'm a believer. All right. Okay. So that's the end of the um, the voicemail backlog. I just have some notes here. One of the things I was thinking about recently is this concept of an investment thesis. So an investment thesis is something that people like USV use, but a lot of VCs are using this concept of we have a thesis. Um, and it seems to me that a thesis is a conclusion. And then they're seeking supporting evidence for their like a priori conclusion. It'd probably be better to have an investment hypothesis, which is sort of below the level of a conclusion, you know, and then you go and find evidence and then maybe come to a different thesis. But just a little weird that there is this concept of investment thesis out there because it just seems like it allows you to fit fit ideas into your conclusion that maybe don't fit. It might lead to bad results. Another point here I have is on SegWit. So SegWit is rolled into Bitcoin Core now, but not activated, I believe. I believe that's the state of SegWit. Um, but one of the things that I thought was interesting about it was that all the all the things that cause transaction malleability, 
are still within the protocol. My understanding is that with SegWit, by segregating the witness data to a different transaction, there's no longer any... Because um, the, the malleability problem is that there's if you have a transaction in a block, you can make slight changes to that transaction such that it's still valid and signed, but it's now hashing to a different string. So it's the same transaction, does the same thing, with the same accounts, still valid. But when you hash the transaction, the unique string you get back is different. And my understanding is that what SegWit does is by moving this witness data there's no longer some the, the ability to like touch that thing and um, change the transaction ID as a result, which is a hash. That's my understanding. I won't um, I won't stand on that as if it's like the actual like full details, um, but that's my understanding. I'd love to be corrected if that's not the case, but something to um, to understand, because I hear people saying that SegWit solves malleability, and it doesn't. Well, it sort of solves malleability. Like there's all the things that make transactions malleable are still there. It's just um, makes it. It solves the problem, but it doesn't. It makes it not a problem or something like that. I don't know. It's just a nuanced little point to understand, maybe. There was a recent um, post I saw where Kraken had some accounts that were hacked. There was reports of accounts being hacked at Kraken, and Kraken's response was like, "All all the accounts that were hacked had like either didn't have two-factor authentication or they had two-factor authentication, but they had it only on withdrawals and not logins, so people could log in." and then take off the 2FA on withdrawals, and so that was what allowed them to be hacked, or their two-factor authentication wasn't set up correctly, or um, what these part, the, what the, the customer should have done is use 2FA, but then go to their control panel under settings, under like account security, uh, and have like these XYZ settings. So I just thought it was interesting that Kraken blames their, the hacked accounts on stupid users, um, which it sounds like it was, but it also sounds like their software was hard to use. You know, that's one of the things that Elon Musk says about Hesse was saying about PayPal at the time he was making it was like how how hard it was to make something more secure and still easy to use. And it sounds like Kraken's a little hard to use. And um that makes me think that you can't mainstream this kind of technology when like that's the level of usability like if not not finding and understanding like kraken's like deeply hidden i don't know i haven't used kraken but it sounds like the way they explain it it's like you have to go on multiple setting pages and know that how they interact um and what the the outcomes of them are it's not very clear um and as a result these people lost money so i don't know if you can mainstream that level of usability at this point I th maybe one way to put put it as well I was just thinking like like you can't mainstream that level of usability but we know that the people that are using Bitcoin ATMs and darknet markets are um, you know just like average folks who have learned the technology and figured it out because they had to. So maybe what I would say as a, an add-on is that you can't mainstream this level of usability, but you can underground it or something like that. I don't know. It seems like the underground um, is where Bitcoin's at. I was listening to this point I'm making now is in relation to Roger Ver's interview with BU, he said something about his $25 transaction and how that was like a big issue. 
but it seems to me like kind of a and like an outrageous argument to put forward. It's kind of like saying like I believe so strongly in Bitcoin, but people are not willing to pay for its growth, or like it's not worth paying for its growth. You know, it's like I believe so strongly in Bitcoin that it should be free. It's like well that sounds like what Bitcoin does is worthless. You know, you want Bitcoin to be valuable, right? So why wouldn't you charge to pay for the growth? Why isn't the growth worth paying for? And also, I, I'm $25 for what he was doing doesn't seem outrageous either. You know, your hosting is X dollars per month if you have a website, if you're an online business. Your bank accounts may even charge monthly member, membership fees um, or transaction fees or wire fees. Um depending on your balances and whatever their setup is. But, you know, some bank accounts have like $10, $15, $20 a month fees. Hosting can be, I mean, hosting can be a range of fees that will scale with your business. So as the fees go up, they scale with your business, especially in hosting. Um, so, but anyways, there's no monthly fees with Bitcoin. There's the cost of running a node, maybe, but most users don't run a node um, because there's enough people running nodes already and like it just doesn't make sense. So they're paying the cost. There's people already running nodes that pay the cost of the externalities that I load onto the network if I'm not running a node. Those people exist. I can just like dump the cost on them. So I do. But like potentially the monthly fee to use Bitcoin might be running a node. All right. So that's one cost. But if you're paying, like the transaction fees are per use. I like that. I like that that's how it works. Like I can sit and have all this potential energy stored up in Bitcoin in my grain silo. And I don't get charged a fee for that. That seems to me very extraordinary. That's a very great benefit. So then when there's a fee, you know, right now the fees are quite low. Like he, he paid a large fee, it seems like, but he paid it. So, I mean, it was worth paying, it sounds like. You know, you could also very easily say, Roger, that like, you know, I'm willing to pay $25 fees, you know, because Bitcoin's that worth it because I really like what I'm getting from Bitcoin. And I know that that goes to securing the network. It's not what he says. It's really weird. Um, But you pay per use. So say you're doing like a thousand transactions per day and you're paying a 10 cent fee on those or let's say you're paying a dollar fee you're doing a thousand transactions per day and you're paying a dollar fee that's a thousand dollars per day in fees but if there was a dollar right you would probably be working to cut that cost down combining your transactions, maybe using a lightning network, like it, it's going to create pressure towards these kind of optimizations if the price goes up and it will also secure the network. But if you're doing a thousand transactions per day at $1 per transaction, and that's a cost of a thousand dollars per day. I mean, let's say your average transaction size is, is, I don't know, 250 bucks, right? I don't know, something like that. Let's just say that that's, $250,000 you're moving at the cost of $1,000. Like, I don't know. Seems seems okay. Um, it just seems like this, the costs scale with like what you're able to do. And as soon as you don't need that capacity, you don't have to pay for that capacity. Whereas like with a server, you might have to like downgrade your server and migrate. I think there's a lot of benefits and um, to the... the per- pay-per-use nature of Bitcoin. The no monthly fee nature of Bitcoin. Nodes excluded. Um, just something to think about. It just seems like a, like a not a really strong argument to make against Bitcoin is all. So that's the end of the show of Unconfirmed Transactions. It's about an hour long. I can't afford to, do, to give you a four, not even a two, but a one hour podcast i don't have the kind of 
luxury time of the fat cats on BU to just be laying around doing four hours worth of podcasting per week. Outrageous. There's something scandalous there. Where's the scam? Um, and there's things I didn't touch on. Like I was asked this week to discuss the fact that um, allegedly Oasis has exit scammed after pumping Monero. That's another recent... <laughs> Got my bee machines in the drawer. Got my bee machines in the drawer.